The Rural Health Voice, Episode 61, Transgender Health. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. How can rural health care providers serve everyone in their communities? Ivy Hill with the Campaign for Southern Equality and Gender Benders joined me to discuss why your zip code should not restrict your access. So welcome, Ivy. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you today. Oh, we're so happy you're able to join us. So tell me, how did you first become interested in addressing community health issues? Oh, gosh. Um, That's a great question. I am trans myself and grew up in a pretty rural place in South Carolina. Um, And at the time when I started kind of doing this work, um, if you were going to find a care provider who was going to treat you as a trans person um, with any kind of dignity and respect, you just really had to know someone else who was trans who was willing to share their experiences um, with you and like talk to you about where they found resources and who they found as medical providers. Um, So really a lot of it was kind of born out of those conversations and just like knowing how lonely um, of a place it can be to be trans in the South and especially in rural places. And now you're with the Campaign for Southern Equality. And I was looking at the website and I was really struck by the statement on the front page that says, your zip code doesn't determine your rights. Yeah. Why do you feel that we need a special emphasis in the South for that? Yeah. Um, well, I feel like it. the, the South is... Um, it's a, we have we face unique challenges in the South. I love the South. It's always been my home. I don't want to live anywhere else. Um, but we do face a lot of unique challenges here. It can be more difficult to find community. It can be more difficult to find health care. Um, we face elevated rates of depression, anxiety, discrimination, violence, all of that stuff in the South, um, and particularly in rural areas too. So I think that that's why that emphasis is there about it's I, one of my core beliefs is I think that every person should be able to access affirming health care in the town that they that they currently live in. And I was looking, in addition to working for the Campaign for Southern Equality, you also founded um, an organization called Gender Benders. Is that right? It is. Yeah. I'm a co-founder and the executive director of Gender Benders. Um, we're another little grassroots nonprofit. Um, we're based in upstate South Carolina and focus specifically on serving trans folks across the Southeast. Excellent. So Southeast, what's your sort of scope of service there? Um, yeah. So like Texas, uh, I think there's 13 Southern states that we actually cover. Um, Texas is about as far down uh, as we go and then up to Tennessee and kind of everywhere in that Southeast region. And then also with the Campaign for Southern Equality, what do we need to know about the services they provide? Uh, We're doing lots of really cool work at the Campaign for Southern Equality. Um, My work specifically is really focused on um, connecting folks to healthcare resources that they need, 
um, albeit through tools like our Trans in the South resource guide or through direct service pop-up clinics um, where we work with local leaders on the ground and we'll bring services that those leaders identify as being most important to their communities, um, to their communities and pop-up clinics. Um, I also do a lot of trans sensitivity trainings with medical providers and other nonprofit organizations. Um, we're doing a lot of research over the last few years, have done a fair amount of research uh, really about the barriers that trans and queer people face in accessing healthcare. Um, and then we kind of work to build grassroots interventions um, for those barriers. So that's sort of my bucket of work at the Campaign for Southern Equality, but we do lots of other really cool stuff too. We have uh, Southern Equality Studios that's um, really centered around lifting up trans and queer artists in the South um, and how and the impact that art plays on social change. We have a Southern Equality Fund um, that right now has been doing a lot of work to get emergency assistance grants to people who've been impacted by COVID-19, um, but also provide grants there to other organizations um, who are doing really incredible work in the South. Um, and there's a few other service areas, program areas that we have too at Campaign for Southern Equality. And as part of the Trans in the South project, you recently released a directory of trans-affirming healthcare providers, and we are really excited to see that several providers on the list are in Virginia, uh, but at the same time disappointed that almost all of them are in major urban centers and none of them are further southwest than Roanoke. How does a provider get listed in the directory in the first place? Do they volunteer? Do they need to be nominated by someone who is trans themselves? How does all that work? So either way, um, and we do, you can, the, I think one of the things that's really cool about the newest update of the Trans in the South Guide is that it's built in that map that you've probably seen. So it, it's a really um, kind of visual picture of where we have a higher concentration of resources and where there are areas that are really sort of resource deserts, which are largely rural areas. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't affirming providers in those areas. It just means that we haven't connected with them. Um, and we vet every provider that gets that gets included in the list. But it, the Trans in the South Guide was really built on this tradition that I kind of touched on a little bit earlier, um, that like, as trans folks, the way that we've been finding care and connecting with resources for so long have just been depending on community um, and talking to other folks who are trans about where they're going. So <clears throat> that's how it started. But um, providers can also self-submit. So there's a section on the website there. If you go to the Trans in the South website where you can submit a provider, if you're a trans person and you're seeing a healthcare provider that you want to make sure gets included in the list, you can submit your provider. Or if you're a provider and you're treating trans folks and you want to make sure that you're included in the list, you can self-submit there too. So for the directory, why did you choose to focus specifically on services for transgender individuals rather than the full LGBTQ spectrum? Yeah, if somebody is trans-affirming, the chances that they're also going to be affirming for um, queer people are very high. But if somebody is queer-affirming, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the experience to treat trans folks. Um, so I think that that is a really kind of a, even though it might not feel like it on the surface level, I think it's really kind of a more holistic way to approach what affirming care is. And a couple of years ago, you wrote an article making the case that transgendered healthcare is primary care. Why do you think that a primary care office is an appropriate setting for someone who's transgendered? Yeah, it's definitely an appropriate um, setting for folks to receive care there. Um, well, first of all, 
being trans is just one part of who we are. We're also whole people, um, and we don't only need access to endocrinologists. We also need um, specialists. We need primary care providers. But if you're a primary care provider and you're prescribing um, hormone therapy to anybody for any reason, albeit a cisgender man who has low testosterone or vice versa for cis women, if you're prescribing hormones for anyone, you should also feel empowered to prescribe those hormones for trans folks. Um, and if you feel like you don't have the education to do that, um, that's definitely where some of our, the trainings and stuff that we offer come to play. Sure. So, you know, many postmenopausal women are getting estrogen replacement therapy. What's really the difference there? Yeah, there's not much of a difference. Um, these are all just the other women who also need estrogen and happen to be trans. Um, so yeah, as I would definitely say that trans care is primary care. VRHA recently launched our Pride of Rural Virginia initiative, and we're considering establishing a directory of providers who are LGBTQ plus affirming. Do you have suggestions for the creation of our directory? Any lessons learned that you think you need to pass along to us? I would say collaboration is key. Um, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Um, we work with a lot of other folks who have existing directories um, and pull resources from there and also link back out to their directories in the guide. Um, spend some time in conversation with the providers who you're listing if you have the capacity to do that. I, th I feel like that vetting process is um, a really important piece. We can't guarantee that if you see a provider who's listed in the Trans in the South guide that you're always going to have a good experience. People have, you know, there's turnover rates in front office staff and um, maybe they have somebody there who hasn't been trained and you have a bad experience there. But we do our best to um, weed out a lot of the folks who uh, we feel like you wouldn't have a good experience with. So we've at least had some conversation with them. And then we also with the Trans in the South guide have included other filters on there to um, kind of help help you not have to ask quite as many questions um, when you're looking for a medical provider. Like we go ahead and ask up front if they take insurance, um, if they're scheduling more than six months out, uh, if they see adolescents, if they require a letter from a therapist to start hormone replacement therapy. So a lot of that sort of um, vetting and conversations that can be really uncomfortable, especially for trans folks with front office staff who may not even fully understand the questions. We go ahead and take a lot of that footwork out of the process for the trans folks who are accessing um, resources through the guide. So I say as much of that as you're able to do um, as some of the stuff that we get feedback about being really helpful. Sounds like we need to have a deeper conversation just on the directory <laughs> in the future. I will remember that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as part of our, our Pride of Rural Virginia initiative, we're going to be providing training to healthcare providers on how they can make hospitals and clinics safe and affirming spaces. Um, you know, especially as you talked about, you know, it's not just the doctors and nurses, it's the front office staff, it's the people taking insurance, it's everybody. You know, thinking about the healthcare providers you've seen over the years, what do you wish they had done to help you feel safe? Um. Some of the things that I think have been most impactful uh, when I see providers who start to do this, like we offer pronoun stickers to providers so they can put them up by 
their front office when you check in. You can go ahead and grab a sticker and put it on your shirt that says your pronouns, and that helps reduce the amount of misgendering that's happening. Um, I would also say when providers have changed their intake paperwork to be gender inclusive and do organ inventories that way, um, that has made a huge difference. Um, and then I think just generally treating people with dignity and respect, which feels like so basic that it shouldn't even have to be said, but unfortunately it does. Well, I think it's interesting. So many of those types of suggestions are relatively simple. I mean, pronoun stickers, you know, you got to buy some, but it's not a terribly complicated thing to do to have them sitting out on the front desk, you know, with, you know, managed care organizations and EHRs sometimes having inclusive paperwork, you know, is, is there more than one gender option, you know, on your intake form? Sometimes that gets more complicated because the decisions are made at a, a health system level, but it's still not a terribly difficult thing to do, even, even though there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Yeah, it's really not. It's not that big of a, um, it, it, it's really not that big of a lift to make these these small changes that really make a huge difference on on what a person, specifically a trans person's experience is when they go to access care there. I think another big one is having all gender bathrooms. Um, if you can just change the signage on the doors um, and or add a sign, even if you can't make it all gender restrooms or you're not ready to take that step yet as a healthcare provider, you can put a sign up on the door additionally that says we respect all people's gender identities. Uh, and that, I mean, just seeing signage like that goes a very long way, you know? Sure. Especially if it's just a single stall bathroom instead of, you know, something with 20 stalls where people might be intimidated by, by somebody else in the room because they're not sure what's going on. If it's just a toilet, why not? Absolutely. Leading up to the healthcare provider education, we're going to have a series of community conversations around the state talking directly to LGBTQ people about their experiences with the healthcare system in their home communities and their needs for the future. What advice would you have for VRHA as we host these conversations? Oh gosh, I don't know. I would applaud you for having those conversations. I think that that's um, huge. Not enough people are having these conversations. Um, I would listen uh, to what what folks have to say about what their experiences are on a local level, um, and then find a way to share that back with um, healthcare providers with like a list of recommendations. Like this is these are the things that community members in your community have said are important to them. And this, these are the experiences that the people who you serve have said that they've had. Um, and here are some recommendations about how we can improve what that experience is like. And we had the kickoff for our initiative in June to coincide with Pride Month. And I think that for heteronormative cis people, we tend to stick LGBTQ priorities in June and then shuffle them into the background for the rest of the year. What do you think can be done to keep health equity in the forefront all year long. It just has to be part of what we do. It just has to be part of what we prioritize and deem to be important. Um, and it's certainly not just an issue for June. Um, it's an all year, um, all the time issue. And with that, what do you think that VRJ could do to encourage more primary providers to serve everyone in their community? Um, I think that there's some things that I've seen, like I've seen some folks do like sticker campaigns um, or poster campaigns or stuff to make the space more like 
where you see people who look like you as an LGBT person um, going to access care there and that that goes a long way to make folks feel more comfortable. Um, or if you all are doing a training process, you could have some sort of a sticker signage certification that they can list on their website or whatever that says that they've been through that training with you all. Um, those are just a couple of ideas off the top of my head. Yeah, we're definitely looking at a, a Pride of Rural Virginia certified maybe sticker or, or le a logo they can put on their website to, to be able to self-identify going forward. I think that's a that's good good potential. Awesome. Now I wanna I wanna think about you know something you said earlier when you're talking about you, you live in the South, you're always gonna live in the South. You said, I don't wanna live anywhere else. Um, and as someone who, you know, grew up in rural America, not in the South, but in rural America, I would absolutely follow up with that and you know i think there's a lot of stereotype that lgbtq people you know either you live in urban america or you were stuck born in rural and you get to urban just as fast as you can uh what what do you think about some of those you know boxes that we stick people in that that you know Everybody that's that's gay is in New York or LA. Yeah, um, that's cute, but it's not true. <laughs> the South is actually home to more folks than any other, more LGBT folks than any other region in the country. Uh, and you know, I, I they can't see because we're on a podcast, but you can see my background. There's a cow pasture right behind me, and I live in a place where, like, when my, my neighbor's cows get out, I have to end the meeting and go help him wrangle up his cows and get it back. Um, I feel like, to me, the South and the rural South um, is just really close to my heart. I feel like uh, the only thing sweeter than the tea is the people here, and it's always been home. Um, I love it here, and I know that I'm not alone in that feeling. I also feel like the work is deeply needed here, um, and when we lose some of our advocates to move to other areas, it's really doing a disservice to other folks who call the rural South home. And last question, the question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? Oh, gosh. Um, I think I just have to take it back full circle to the top of the conversation where I believe with my whole heart that every person um, deserves to access affirming healthcare with a provider who will treat them with dignity and respect in their hometown. Um, so, and I also think that there are healthcare providers in every rural town across the South who want to treat folks, LGBT folks, trans folks, queer folks with dignity and respect. Um, they just don't have the education. It's not that they have like bad hearts or they don't feel like we deserve respect. They just don't know that they have the ability to do this. And they haven't had the education about how to actually do it. So I think it's it's all about getting more training resources out there to folks and connecting people with the resources that are already there. Well, we're going to try hard to do that in Virginia. Awesome. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ivy. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, of course. It was great to chat with you. That's Ivy Hill with a reminder that every rural American should be able to access healthcare services in their hometown and be treated with respect. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join one of our Pride of Rural Virginia community conversations. Visit vrha.org and click the Pride logo at the bottom of the page. 
the Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.